Welcome to the Digital Agency Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Englander. Today's episode is sponsored by our company, Sales Schema. We are a managed opportunity generation service for digital agencies. We deliver hundreds of annual opportunities with marketing leaders based on the criteria that we come up with our clients through an exhaustive blueprint process before we ever begin. The way that we are doing this is that we are acting as an extension of our clients' teams to tee up opportunities and ensure that 99% of their time is spent on high-value tasks like pitching, building relationships, not getting that initial interest, not scheduling, not managing the knobs and wires of what it takes to get leads You know, in places like email, LinkedIn, or phone. We handle two-thirds of the process so that our clients can spend most of their time doing stuff that actually is high value and requires creativity. So that's really what we're focused on. If you want to learn more about what we're doing, you can go to saleschema.com. Today's guest is Hunter Elkins, who's the owner and founder of Elkins Retail Advertising in the SF Bay Area. Hunter has a really interesting background because he is a dyed-in-the-wool sales guy that had to learn how to become an agency owner and had to learn everything that it takes creatively, you know, managerially to run an agency. And, and often what I find in this space is it's the other way around, that somebody comes from a creative field and then has to learn how to sell. So I think his perspective is really interesting from just being in the trenches with this for a really long time and working in some really compelling industries that, that really kind of go to the beat of their own drummer, like automotive is one that we dug into a lot. Tied to you know Hunter's sales skills and his background there were some really interesting points we covered, like how to leverage timing in your sales process to make things happen sooner rather than later. Also, just consistent practices, what he does each and every morning to make sure that there is a strong portfolio of opportunities in this pipeline. We talked a lot about kind of bigger macro trends in different industries and what that can mean for your relationship with your client. Hunter had some really interesting things to say about when is the right time to actually tell your client, hey, now is not when you should be spending money. Now is not when you should be paying us, which is a really contrarian point of view and very, uh, very interesting. And another thing we covered is the importance of helping your client to think long-term while making it easy for them and sort of having to play into this realm of short-term thinking that the internet and that technology allows for clients, you know, especially as it applies to optionality. So let's get into it. Without further ado, please welcome Hunter Elkins. Hunter, thank you for joining on the podcast. Good to have you. Thank you. My pleasure. Good to be here. Yeah, likewise. So you, I, I know you're you're in NorCal and you're, you've been running an agency for a number of decades. Would you mind just giving us, you know, a quick overview of your agency and, and who you're focused on? Sure. I started the agency now 29 years ago in February. It's, it was started out as Elkins Retail Advertising, named after a retail advertising class I took at San Jose State, oddly enough. A little tribute to one of my instructors. We dropped the retail part, even though most of our clients are B2C in the retail space. We do a lot of automotive, a lot of home furnishings, credit unions, nonprofits. We have evolved over the years since we started before the internet, and it came along, and we're pretty sure it's going to stay. So digital is probably about half of what we do now. We started out in the traditional space, TV, radio, print, and have evolved into the new media. Right, and I know you guys are in some pretty specialized areas, but are there any you know campaigns or interesting projects that people might know about, or even if they don't know about it, just the, that you know you you found to be particularly compelling in the years you've been running the agency? Sure. Well, we helped to launch a brand in Northern California called Mancini Sleep World, and we literally made the very first commercials for their very first store when they got out of newspaper. Well, actually, added 
electronic to their campaign. And uh, we helped them grow to, I think it was about 11 or 12 stores. And they actually took it internally. But they're a big brand name in Northern California. They've got 31 stores now. I still see Randy Mancini, who's the son of the owner, who's now the owner. And uh, that's, that's kind of a name that people know. One that I'm particularly proud of is an automotive group called the Dell Brand Dealer Group. And if you live in this market, it's dgdg.com. We started working with them now about 11 or 12 years ago, just going into a recession, which was fun. And at the time, they had four dealerships. They were spending $750,000 a year in print. I asked why they would have two Mazda dealerships, both buying a half page in the same paper when they could share an ad and maybe have a battle of the bands kind of thing. So we put them into radio to start. We developed the, the idea of tying all the stores together under one banner. They now have 17 dealerships in Northern California. They're the largest family-owned dealer group in Northern California. That campaign, and unfortunately, as of January 1, their yellow license plate with the DGDG.com logo is no longer kosher in California because the state now enforces that you have to give temporary plates out as soon as you sell a car because people are driving and cross bridges without paying tolls. But uh, they don't just be a car buyer, be a happy car buyer has been their tagline since we started. And they have they have stayed consistent with that and have grown and uh, are consistently voted one of the best places to work. They were voted the number one automotive website in America two years ago in Chicago. So really a great group to work with, great family-run store. Uh, we really enjoyed that. On the other end of the spectrum, we worked with uh, Second Harvest Food Bank, which is one of the largest nonprofits and one of the best known in Northern California for I've lost track something like 20 years and our most recent holiday campaign for them raised 16 and a half million dollars in a couple of months. We coordinate with major corporations in Silicon Valley who donate money to pay for the advertising campaign and to raise the funds. And then we work on food drives and cash donations. And that's one that we really obviously feel good about. Right. So there's, there's obviously lots of compelling work you've done through the through the years. And I, I'd love to get into that more in a second about the changes you're seeing in industries like that, which, you know, which are always happening. I, I guess before that, can you talk to us a bit about what compelled you to start an agency and take on this leadership role? Sure. The log cabin story. So <laughs> I started in uh, at San Jose State University nearby here as a radio TV major. I thought I wanted to be either a DJ or an anchor man at 18 years old. I was fortunate to get on the radio station and have a show at 19, and I realized that I not only have a great face for radio, but I'm not really good at it. So I decided this is going to be a hard career, and I met people who did it and decided, okay, that was a a youthful glimmer of an idea. Maybe I should get into something more sales-related. And I had been editor of my high school paper, so advertising fell into the School of Journalism, so I fell into that school, met some amazing instructors who became mentors of mine, really enjoyed it. So I interviewed for jobs about six months before I graduated. The day after I graduated from college with an advertising degree, I started in sales at an advertising agency uh, locally here. I worked there for two years. At the end of the two years, more than half of the billing for the agency was coming from me, and I was 24, 25 at the time, and I wasn't really happy in that scenario. So I had offers to work for others. I went back to college, talked to my mentors. They said, why don't you do it on your own? So I did. So that's how it's... uh, 29 years in business when I'm, I'm this incredibly, you know, I'm only 42. I'm kidding. I'm 54. <laughs> but uh, I started the agency then with an idea that if I can't make this work in a year, I'll take one of these other jobs. On my first anniversary in business, one of the big agencies that offered me a job when I was business. And that sort of told me maybe I made the right choice. At least I still had a job. And we've grown since then. That's great. I have, a, I have a similar background doing college radio at KZSC, which is UC Santa Cruz's station. Don't remember that much of it. I was on, you know, 
probably three to 6 a.m. to start with and gradually improved and got promoted to 12.30, then finally landed at the 10.30 slot. So it's all a blur now, but I'm sure it was good. I'm sure it was a fun time at all. That's that's really interesting. So you you basically started in a sales role and kicked ass there and then moved on to starting your own agency, which I think is a little bit different than lots of founders that start in a more creative position or start in a more kind of like advertising position and then, and then eventually do their own thing. So there's lots of lots we could go and do there. And we're obviously kind of emphasized on, on new business. I guess one big question is what do you what do you wish you knew day one of running the agency about new business, about sales that you know now? What's what's something that you know you wish you knew then? Wow. Um, that's a great question. Because I felt like that was the only thing that I actually knew. The flip is more true, but I wish I knew everything else. Yeah. Uh, because I knew nothing about running a business. I knew nothing about HR. I knew nothing about legal. There were so many things I didn't know. I think at that time, we probably overpromised and overdelivered a lot, and it, it set a standard. And we still try to obviously crush it for clients. I mean, the number one thing has to be, and I knew it at that time, which is part of the success. And it's, I'll go into what I didn't know, but the idea that you have to give, we, we are investment counselors for our clients. And if you're not doing what's right for your client, then you're not going to stay no matter how good you are in sales. And so having that as, as a base probably helped me survive. But needing to be more holistic in what I was talking about with my clients being consultative and really looking at their whole business. I was young. I didn't, you know, there were a lot of things I didn't know. And now, you know, three decades later, I can talk about the car business or the furniture business or the media business with almost anybody and feel like I can keep up. But I think being better versed, maybe having more mentors in the various industries would have been great. And I about a little plug for a group that I belong to called Entrepreneurs Organization, which is a global Mm -hmm. group. I joined them uh, almost 20 years ago. And that was where I learned so much about what it is to be a CEO and to be an entrepreneur. And I really, I'm, I'm still a sales guy that opened an agency, but now I've been, I, I can say I'm a CEO. I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm much better at running a company now. And I've learned so much from my affiliations with the people in EO that that's been, uh, I would tell young people that start a company, uh, they really should look at it. Right. And it's interesting when you focus on a particular industry or a set of industries and you keep sort of zooming in on it and it's like a fractal. There's just more and more information and more and more that you didn't know as you, as you go along. And that's kind of kind of been my experience working with agencies. So I guess with that in mind, maybe talking about auto, can, can you talk about what what you've learned over the years from working with an industry like that and maybe what trends you're seeing that you think are going to shake things up in a space like that? Sure. For, for everybody, and it was especially trend automotive, the clients tend to have short attention spans and they get tired of their campaigns before the public does. And so I've said for years on my gravestone, they'll put consistency is more important than creativity. That those that have a message that basically tells who they are and they can keep doing it will be a brand that we know. And, you know, Nike's not getting rid of just do it. You know, I always use these examples, but it, it's, it's obvious. You know, if, you, if you're going to start down something, uh, stick with it. And for those that want the shiny new toy every year, you're just starting over. You're literally, you might as well change when you're coming in. In the automotive space, it's very difficult to get, especially now, now more so than ever, to get clients to take the long view. And now it is bottom of funnel and we need the person who's shopping for a car tomorrow and we want to be on, online. And you need to be, it's definitely a part of it. But I, I use the analogy of a balanced diet and, and some 401k advertising. You need to put some money out there that, no, this isn't going to be for the person that's buying tomorrow. But you want them when the time comes to think of you. And the old example I always use was there's a, a, a big uh, appliance store from this market. It was never a client of mine, but they were on page three facing of the, of the local newspaper 
pretty much every day for forever. And the day your refrigerator broke, you opened it and went, oh, it's my lucky day. They're having a refrigerator sale. Well, they've been having one for three decades, you know, but, but today it seemed to be your timing. And so it's the same thing in automotive. People are only in the market every three to four years on average. And so you need to be top of mind. And now when they go to search you or they go to a website that is recommending automotive or they're perusing other ads, they have some familiarity with you. Right. I think that's that's a really important point and something that is a challenge, you know, for all agencies and pretty much all businesses is getting clients to think longer term and to think in broad frame and so on. But at the same time, you have a new dynamic with the internet where optionality is really valuable and there's lots of different strategies and people and companies and technologies people can work with. So I guess, first of all, is that a challenge that you've, you've dealt with is sort of finding that balance between getting people to think long term while you know, dealing with the fact that they want optionality? And if so, how have you, have you gone about approaching that problem? Absolutely a problem. And, and, and it tends to be that, that clients get excited about the hot new toy. And I mean, so when digital came along, we were doing this for 20 years and nobody really questioned if they were doing well, Hey, you're on TV and radio and your sales are up. You're number one in your, in your franchise, uh, you know, in the market and you're winning awards and shaking hands. Like one of my first clients was the number one Toyota dealer, number one volume Toyota dealer in Northern California for three years in a row. Uh, they were never number one before or since we were their agencies, a, a dealership called Melody Toyota up in San Bruno. And we they had a great operation. I was advertising is only you know, 10 or 20% of what you're doing. The rest of it has to be there. But they had just a, a machine running advertising. And nobody ever questioned it. Nobody, you know, we didn't have analytics, but everybody knew, you know, there was a feeling that sales are going up. People are saying our name. It was very, you know, anecdotal that there was money in the bank. And now there will be people who question the value of traditional media because there may not be an analytic on a radio ad. And you'll say, well, we know it worked for forever. The fact that Google doesn't necessarily measure it doesn't mean it doesn't work. And here are those out there who are winning and beating you in this traditional space. And so we've seen people swing completely the other way. And as an agency, we're really agnostic about it. Whatever works. And at the end of the day, you're going to do what a client wants you to do, but I'll advise a balanced plan. But we've seen people now 2016, best year in the car business, 2016, 2017, you know, record crazy years for a lot of you know, combination of market reasons. Uh, and so people got into digital like, wow, it really works great. And then they do the same plan a year later in 2018 and they say, well, it wasn't as good. It must not be good anymore. Well, it wasn't your media. It was you know, the market change. But it's given people pause going into 2019 to say, wow, maybe that's not the whole answer. And it's funny because it's a bias that's probably not entirely accurate. It's not really a knock on digital, but it's making people pause. And so the pause is good because they're they're considering now the balance that they weren't getting because they they were losing the brand equity for their particular store. Right, which I imagine is very hard to measure and, and is illegible, but then you kind of see it when it's a problem, <laughs> when it's out in front of you. So uh, sh- shifting gears just a little bit. So, you know, you, you all obviously done really well in auto and, and sold successfully into that market, which stereotypically to me is not for the faint of heart. I think selling into an auto dealership sounds like one of the hardest markets to sell into because I'm just envisioning the owner running around the floor, yelling at people saying no, maybe not looking at his emails ever. How, how did you manage to break into that space? And what have you, do you, and do you have any good war stories from trying to get those people to buy from you? <laughs> um, well, first I'll say, and I do this often at cocktail parties, I defend the industry. There are no higher percentage of bad people in that industry than any other, but they're in, I always say that the, the automotive industry on the sales level is the same as a, a cop or a dentist. 
people lie to them every time they see them. And so at some point it's hard for them to have trust. And so when somebody brings in a car and says, I only, you know, my grandmother drove it and there's, it's never been in a wreck. And you go, in fact, you drag race it and there's, and there's a uh, frame damage, you know, they start to lose sort of trust in humanity and they are in a business where everybody wants to negotiate. And so that is that, that stereotype is true. These are smart business people who, you know, who want to deal. And it's still the last major purchase we make in life that you really wind, uh, you really wind up the process and people still want to grind back and forth with such wide uh, spans and, and expectations in, in pricing. So we had, I, I can tell you the, uh, gosh, Melody Toyota was a client that when I was 24, when I met him and I say, when I, when I got started in the business, I really won business on enthusiasm because I didn't, I mean, I knew some stuff, but I, I mean, I had a degree in advertising, a big deal. I was really enthusiastic and I really got to know the people. And that helped me. And they would sort of tell me what I needed to know. And I didn't know what I didn't know. And so I, I kind of told the truth, <laughs> you know, and I still do. But it was funny because I think a lot of people in the beginning want to sort of BS their way into it. And, and I would just say, hey, what I don't know, I'm going to find out for you. And so as we learned the business, that was a dealership that uh, when I met them, they were number eight in Northern California. And I didn't know why they couldn't be number one. What do we need to do? They were in a good market. And so we looked at their market and they're in the San Bruno Daily City in the North Peninsula, south of San Francisco, a uh, big Filipino population. So we bought Filipino TV and we did testimonials, which were fun. And we had, we developed a campaign that for them called Melody's Got It, which was all about selection. We just tried to decide between selection price and service, you know, what do you really want to focus on? And that was a smart thing early on for me that really stuck with me is that everybody out there wants to say best price, best service, best selection, best people. And it could be any industry for anything. It's like, it's, it doesn't mean anything. Yeah, mm -hmm. on something and say this is going to be our principal differentiator, a unique selling proposition like we learned in school. But to really do that and own it, most people don't do. Their, their actual things just are not specific enough. Right, right, and getting really focused on on who they're going after. And you said something else that was interesting that as you're dealing with these guys that are getting BS all day and then constantly having to negotiate with people and so on. So, and you mentioned that you know telling the truth is obviously important in any situation, but especially with these guys because I'm guessing they're just sniffing out BS very quickly. With that in mind, you know what what did you actually do to get them to turn around and realize, okay, this this guy's a little bit different. I should trust him. Like, I, what what did you do? To get, get to that moment to kind of get them to love again, if that makes sense. <laughs> At some point, this is an industry of name dropping, and you kind of get in the first one's the hard one. And that's where I was really lucky early on to have clients like Mancini Sleep Building. And by the way, whenever I drop names to clients, I always feel like uh, the Howard Stern movie when they're like, not Stereo Shack, not Muffler Man. It's like he's made up. It doesn't mean anything. But people, yeah, yeah. at that time, that was your whole world. And years right. later, you back and go, I haven't made a nickel on any of those in 20 years, but boy, they were formative. But yeah. to have clients like that, that were in a position to do well. And once you've got one, you know, it's like Hollywood. You're, you know, you're judged by your last movie. And, and in general, if you can start to string together, you know, every other year, make a good movie and let the stinkers in the middle get lost, you know, you build a brand. And mm -hmm. we've been very lucky now. 29 years in, I was on the phone yesterday with a client of mine, uh, Ronnie Heller from Barron's Jewelers. He's been a client of mine since we were both in our 20s. I worked with his father. He, uh, his father passed away. He took over the business. He's done an amazing job with it. And I've known him that long. And so if you can get a client and really build a relationship and, and you know manage the changes over the years like you know we're all going to do, that's been a real key to success. So we have a really long lifespan with our clients. And in the beginning, to get them to love again, to your point, you got to show them something. you got to give them yeah. results. And we try not to, we try to manage that expectation of 
there's radio salespeople out there who need to make their money, and they will tell you, "Give me two weeks, and I'll change your, I'll change your religion." It doesn't happen. It's just, it's, it's not. It's like going to a gym. I've had a trainer for three years, and and it's, it's been great, but it's been gradual because that's how life works, and right. and so things don't happen instantaneously. But car dealers ask for it. Everybody in retail wants. Oh, I went on the internet, so why am I not rich today? So I think to manage expectations and also to pick something and dominate it. And so for our clients, we say back in the day, if it was radio, TV, outdoor, whatever, said, let's go on in the case of the Toyota dealership, let's go on TV and let's own it. I mean, as much as we can. And so back then it was, you know, cable had less, had less viewership by network, but really let's do that and do it well. And when we look at competitors for our clients, and I love to do this, I love to say, who's the person kicking your ass right now? You know, who is it out there that you wish you were? Let's model ourselves on best practices and recognize that they picked something that they're doing really well. And you're not. And maybe you need to find an alternative that you can win at. You know, I would say, if you got to fight Mike Tyson, make it a spelling bee. Don't take somebody on in their own, in their own strength. Pick an area that maybe it's special finance or used cars or the, the Vietnamese demographic or something uh, where you can start to build some traction. Uh, yeah, that worked out really well. We've had people take some small wins and then grow to, oh, now we're ready for network TV or we're going to really go after, you know, a digital presence. Right. I think you hit on some some really key points that are probably almost universally true. So that's that's great. And one of those, yeah, and this is something that I, I say on my sales calls every day is it really is about habits over finite projects. And I think that setting that expectation can become a real differentiator in terms of building trust because that's that's the reality is that, you know, you as an agency owner are going to help your client move a lot faster and a lot better, but it's not going to be a quick fix or an overnight success almost ever. It only seems like that once you've invested all the time and effort and then things can, then there's like this critical mass moment where I think things move quickly. The other thing you mentioned, which I love is, is the idea of, of, you know, niching or picking something and dominating is, is really big. If you think about every successful, you know, force multiplier industry out there, they all started with a niche, you know, IBM started with calculators, Facebook with colleges, Amazon was books. So it's, it's, it's sort of uh egotistical to think that your company is going to be an exception to that rule, right? So that's, that's really huge. Another thing that you mentioned in the beginning is, is relationship building and the fact that you've had these relationships over decades. And, you know, that's been a, a huge benefit for your agency in terms of your longevity. One thing that's, that's tough, especially in the agency world, is getting to a place where somebody else can be building those relationships and selling, and you can move yourself outside of the equation. And the agency is not just you. And maybe you don't have all the answers there yet, but would you mind talking about how you've approached that problem and yeah, what you're doing in that regard? Well, I spent, you know, as a sales guy that opened an agency, I've spent 29 years trying to find the purpose that I'm saying. Most people listening to the agency business, you get where I'm coming from. You're not going to clone yourself. You can't remake yourself. So you have to play to your team's strengths and try to find somebody. I'd love to find you know, uh, the best salesperson in the world to come in and work with me and, and, and do exactly, you know, do a better job than I've done over the years. I've had over the years a number of account executives and salespeople. I've tried it. I've tried like car dealers experiment with advertising. You know, I've tried the various versions of let's make it solid, let's make it commission, let's pay them to get the meetings, let's do this and that. At this point, six, seven years ago, I wrote out my job description and all the things that I was doing. And I circled all the stuff that I hate. And I said, that's a job description for somebody else. And I hired somebody to do that. And most of that was not selling. It was the day-to-day operations of handling clients. It was the time-consuming, getting copy approved, getting voiceovers, getting discounts and legal approval and co-op selling and blah, blah, blah. And it was the day-to-day minutia that, frankly, gathered yet. The lazy, the little high energy. You know, I'm, not really, I'm not your accountant, and nor should I be. Uh, so I want to be having big ideas. 
and putting those on paper and passing them off. So delegating all of that was a big step for me. And then over the years, I've hired people who I said, your job is to catch them, clean them. And if you can bring in a client, and you can keep them as I've done, I'll pay you a commission. You know, get into your life. That would be great. The challenge with that was once they get three or four or five good clients, they're either too busy to keep prospecting because all the time is spent servicing or they get comfortable with the amount of money they're making and say, no, I'm good. You know, I don't, I don't I, this is about as much as I want to work and about as much money as I want to make. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Then you got to try to find somebody to keep doing that. So we have clearly survived this in the last couple of years. It's been the biggest years ever, but I certainly have not perfected. Right. Early on to try to build somebody, I'd like to have somebody in that role now that I would say this is going to be, I'll move from being CEO to being chairman and this person will become a CEO. And I haven't done that. I, I really don't have that mapped out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I plan to keep my agency in perpetuity. That's wood we're knocking. Um, mm-hmm. And be able to draw an income from it forever and eventually be the old guy that walks in on Fridays and says, how's everybody? You know, what's your name? You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, it's a dream, dare to dream. But um, I, I need to build that that structure. I have all my other departments really well. I've got great people across the board. I, I could not have done this. My creative director, Ken Hanamoto, has been with me 29 years. I mean, we've been doing this since we were fresh out of college. He was an intern at the first agency I worked at. And wow. The hardest working, most beloved man in this business. He's such a great guy. But my whole staff, I've got people that have been with me, Beth, my new directors, 15, 16 years, my house manager, 16 years. Uh, just a great team of people. And so I've got the departments pretty well figured out, and I still am a bigger part of the sales department. Right. And, and you know, you, you have obviously a background in sales, a lot of experience there and, and seem to enjoy it. And I'm guessing you've seen that process change a lot over the years from when it was probably more phone or in-person based to one where, you know, you're contacting more people that you don't know. I guess what, what have you found to, to work consistently? Like, what are you getting up every morning and doing more or less since the beginning that's, that's continued to work and that hasn't changed regardless of technology or the industry or anything else? Keeping an eye on a term I learned in a business professional school called your inventory of opportunities. And this basically, whatever you want to call these are all across the board for sales. So these are people that you met that are, they're, you know, they're, they're warm, but they're not done. And you've got to decide what is the timing. And I, I have become convinced. Uh, getting Bern Harnish, who's one of the senior people in, in the African organization, part of a successful man, had breakfast with him once in the, in the breakfast meeting. And he was saying, we've kind of determined after looking at it that it's 80% timing. Whatever you're doing, whatever you're successful with, it's about timing. And I point out that, you know, Apple came out with a new, you know, the new No. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Making my point. So they came out with a Newton, which was essentially an iPad, a crappy one, albeit, but an iPad. Before the world knew they wanted it, thought they wanted it, or in fact wanted it. And it was a bomb. And then when the iPad came out, it was the right product at the right time and became, you know, obviously a success. And so timing is really key. And so for me, there are times like right now, I've got a, a prospect that I'm talking with who has said, yeah, we've decided going into 2019, a lot of people make this decision in January. We're looking at last year and it wasn't as good as we wanted it to be. And a lot of those are market factors. Some are competition, you know, some are internal HR, et cetera, et cetera. Some are franchise driven. You know, if you're in a franchise that just had massive recalls or went bankrupt, that's a bad thing. Uh, but, but a lot of it is uh, the choices they made. And so they'll say, oh, we're looking at that fresh start. Show me, you know, last year we did this and we didn't like it. And so frankly, it's it's taking advantage of that urge that they have that I don't like to change. When it's my clients, I don't want them to have it. When it's a prospect, I love it. So I will take that opportunity to say, well, let's take a look at what you've been doing. And we do what we call free media audit, where we'll take a look at everything you're doing. And I've had over the years, had a commercial truck dealer, selling like big trucks, like, you know, 
F-350 and beyond. I mean, big stuff. And his complaint was that they didn't have enough women buyers. And I said, well, let's talk about your demographic. Let's talk a little about demographics. And why is it that you think that's what you need? And sometimes people buy uh, the media that they like. I can sell uh, sports radio. There's great sports radio. There's two great sports radio stations in our market and they're good partners of ours. But I could sell that pretty easily to almost anybody because almost all the people that I talk to are in the car business are men over 45 who love sports radio. And so they'll buy it because they like it. Well, it doesn't necessarily mean it's right if you're a dress shop, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean it's right if you're a nonprofit seeking women. So the, the balance of really trying to focus on what they've been doing in the media audit and decisions that they made without good data. And we are analytics driven now because the industry is when we have it. If I could tell you, if I could, you know, tell you on radio, how many people heard your ad and then went over and typed on your website, you know, I'd, I'd love to be able to do that. We can guess, but we can't track it. And so Google analytics is a blessing and a curse. It's overvalued, it's oversold, it's over relied on. And people now that, you know, we've gotten past impressions and we've gotten past clicks and we've gotten past, you know, time spent on the site and we really got into what are conversions. What did you spend to get somebody to do something that you made money on? And it's sort of taken a little bit of the, the, the power out of the swing of the club of Google Analytics. And they say, well, you don't know that for TV or you don't know that for radio. And again, I'm not defending traditional media, but I think they're, for a lot of clients, are an important part of the mix. When you start to look at, yeah, your Google Analytics are great, your business sucks. What does that tell you? What's going on? You got plenty of people coming to your website and your website's not good. Or your sales team's not good. Your internet manager's not following up. And so really being holistic in how we look at it. And a lot of times when we meet with clients, the number one piece of advice that we give them that we get hired because of was a trust building exercise and something we don't get paid on. You know, it was about your customer service or it was about your parking or it was, I mean, we just go in and say, your baby's ugly. You know, here's what you need to know. These things in your business are preventing and we do secret shopping. We'll shop their competitors and them. And we've done this repeatedly for clients over the years. We started out in the old days of newspaper. We're on a Friday morning when your ad broke in the automotive section that used to exist kids back when the internet was on paper, you would have, you know, here's all the Toyota Camrys and, and Corollas. And if we didn't have the lowest price, we would write them all down. We would fax it. This was a machine that sent paper. We would fax it to a client and say, this is where you're getting beat on this price on this car. Do you want to change it for tomorrow morning? We have five minutes. Yes, lower the price or take the car. So we guaranteed pretty much that we, we knew we were going to have the lowest price in the paper. Well, trying to do that on the internet, you can go blind. I mean, it's really hard to track that. But now with analytics, we can look at what how people are responding to their advertising. And then we can look at their competitors and say, here's their website and here's yours. Which one do you think is easier? And the number of, of dealers in any category, we've been introducing a lot of clients to, to digital campaigns over the last 10, 15 years. Some that really, you know, back when a website set you apart, you know, I was there then. And now there are things that it's table stakes. You have to have good SEM. You have to have SEO. You have to have, you know, links to your, your YouTube channel. And so when we show them somebody else's site, they don't spend enough time on theirs and their competitors. And that's where 85 to 90% of, of shoppers are starting. Right. And one thing you said uh, tied to all of that is, is that it's 80% timing and the timing is, is really important. Can you talk about how you, you leverage that dynamic and how you use timing to your advantage to, to, you know, essentially to close deals? And if the timing is not right, is there anything that you can do to make it right <laughs> that you found to work? Yeah. So uh, on the first one, and, uh, so as I said, a lot of times this time of year, we're talking the very end of January of 2019, this is a time of year when people make New Year's resolutions. They look at their Q4 numbers. They make decisions on the past year. And so we look at trends in the industries and say, what are we seeing? And we see Ford and Chevy going away from making passenger cars and Toyota and Honda will thank them. Next year, they'll send Christmas baskets. I mean, 
Camrys and Accords will we'll have a good year when Chevy and Ford and Dodge all decide to make fewer four-door passenger cars. But they, so they're sort of walking away from that category, which I, I think long run is going to be a mistake, but uh, it's a little extreme. So we look at those trends and say, hey, if you're doing this, if that's changing, then how do we leverage that? If everybody's going to want to be, you know, if there's, if there's a difference for the consumer, how do we make that happen? And so change is good. Change is good for us. If the rate of change in the market is greater than the rate of change in your business, as my friend Cameron Harold says, then you're going to go out of business. So you have to play to that. So when there's change in the market, that's an opportunity. And that's a chance to say what you did last year won't work anymore because this is the difference in whatever, your product mix, how people buy cars, et cetera. The ability to buy cars online, to negotiate online, to do financing online is a huge step forward. There's a uh, great group, a company called Roadster that allows you to negotiate on the website. And that's the sort of thing that is changing the industry. And I love to see people outside the automotive business come in with practices from other industries and, and, re, and, and reshape it. And, you know, Uber wasn't invented by taxi companies. Airbnb was not invented by Hilton hotels. You know, it's an outsider from an industry that really flips it on its head because the, the industry itself, I'd like to attribute this quote and I can't remember who said it, but basically they have an immune system that will not allow that idea to live. They, they would kill it. They would kill it in the Petri dish. They were like, that's so friggin' different. You don't know what you're talking about. And then Uber, Lyft, <laughs> taxi cab guys going, but I have this medallion in a big yellow car. Why is it not worth money anymore? And, and that's going to happen in broadcast TV and radio. There's going to be changes in those industries. So for the car dealers, taking advantage of changes in technology, changes in their competitors, changes in the market and their manufacturers is timing. Those are, those are, those are ways you can invent timing. One that we use to a client's benefit who is an existing client with Del Grand Dealer Group back in, I'm trying to remember the year, but when Fukushima happened, when the Fukushima nuclear disaster happened after the tsunami in Japan, Japan couldn't make cars for a while. I mean, it's pretty close to true. They were very limited in their production capacity. So Toyota and Honda and Nissan were really having troubles getting cars out. And to the public, there wasn't a lot of inventory. The car dealers, they were panicking. And my client also sold Hyundai and Kia and I think Mazdas were made somewhere else. And so they had said, hey, this summer, we think we're just going to pull the radio because we don't have anything to talk about. And I said, but you have cars. And he goes, oh, you know, a lot of cars. And I said, yeah, but you have cars. And so if, you on, if you're on the radio and you say we have cars and no one else does, you're the only guy with cars. And so, again, public sees, you know, zero or 100. It's a 50, but we're the only ones saying it. And an amazing summer. And, and I remember getting a call from, from the owner. And he's like, that was a good call. And it was it was funny because the opposite is true that, I will occasionally tell clients, now's not the time. I remember 9-11 and I remember calling clients and I remember saying, we don't know what's happening. If you need to, you know, you tell me what you need to do. I'm in sales. I'd like you to keep doing what you're doing. But if you think this is going to be, you know, uh, as bad as it was, we're going to pull you off. We're going to do what we need to do to make things right. I've been here for the Loma Prieta earthquake. You know, I mean, there's things that happen in the market that you have to say, this is my time to recognize I don't get to make money this month. That was one that was risky because I felt like a salesman. I was convincing him to keep his money in when the market was shitty and it turned out to be the right move. And that was one that if I had failed, might've been a trust breaker, but it was a risk. Mm-hmm. That, that's that's a really important point. Another thing that, that you said is dealing with change, dealing with you know staying ahead of the rate of change in your industry as, as a company, as a player in, in a particular industry. And it kind of reminds me of that Bezos quote, which I'm probably going to butcher, which is something to the effect of if you're waiting for more than 80% information, you're waiting too long and the opportunity cost is going to be more than if you make a decision with imperfect information. The enemy of a good plan is a great plan. Right, exactly. Do something, for the love of God. Yeah. When yeah. in doubt, attack, yeah. 
So I guess kind of, you know, it's really tough to make big companies do that. And and there's obvious, they'd obviously be better suited if they do, but there's all sorts of reasons that you can give your client the best rec. They might not do it, but I guess taking your own medicine and practicing what you preach in that regard, are there any decisions that you've made quickly to, you know, in the course of your, your agency that you're glad you made quickly that, that you were able to kind of get out ahead of, if that makes sense? Yeah, we were my office might laugh at this. I, I'm, I'm the least technical person in the building because I'm the old sales guy. But we were we, we put a website together pretty quickly. And it's funny, the cobbler's kids have no shoes. We've helped people build a lot of websites, launch a lot of websites, and work with a lot of different partners in internally in over the years. But we sort of recognized early on that in a service business that, that is brick and mortar but no clients visit, your website's really important. I mean, we got that early on. And so now I feel like we've got a pretty good representation on our website. Keeping that current has been a big deal. I bought a building, which is a whole different conversation, but it was something that uh, rents were going crazy in Silicon Valley, and I was paying a lot of money for the space that I was in, and I decided I didn't want to do that anymore. And now looking back, I'm investing everything. And it was a lesson that I learned from a car dealer who bought his building and said, you know, at the end of the day, all I got to do is stay open, and I'm the landlord. I'm paying myself. And uh, that's that's proving true for me personally. So for those other agency owners that may be renting space, I ask you, do the math and look at it. See, are you, you know, could you have a, an asset at the end of this as opposed to uh, making somebody else rich on your space? So those are a couple of things that I sort of went after on faith and felt pretty good about. And okay. I've been so blessed to have so many good people work for me that trying to, from an HR standpoint, hold a side conversation learning an agency, but trying to be a human being and, and trying to recognize that at various stages in people's lives, there's going to be years that they've got more challenges than others. And my office was there for me. My mom passed away about 15 years ago, and it was a, it was a, you know, a heroin process that unfortunately, biologically done correctly, we're all going to go through. We should outlive our parents, but it, it was too, too, too soon and too hard. And they were incredibly supportive. It was just, it was a family. And so at that point, I said, anybody with anything uh, family related, I'm good. What do you need to do? You know, and that I think has built a great bond in the office. I hope so. But and so this is you know none of these are secrets. Be a human being. You know, try to do the right thing. Think, think if it was you, what would you want somebody to do? And if it was a family member, what would you want? Yeah, so that's yeah, cool. that's 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 huge. And it, it's sort of it's advice that makes sense. But then sometimes there's this collective insanity that everybody goes through, and there's just through company policies, and everybody says they have to do it a certain way. Is there anything like that 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 you guys have done that seems contrarian to the typical maybe the typical agency model or just the typical working model? That's like you know what we actually. After doing this for 10, 20 years, we don't have to do it this way. We decided to do it differently. Anything like that you can talk about? Well, we've got, you know, the balance of the employees. I've got 11 uh, employees now, and I have a mix of they come into the office every day. They never come into the office. They come in late. They come in early. I've really allowed a certain degree of work flexibility. They're all incredibly hardworking. At the end of the day, if the job is done, why would I care? You know, if you work better wearing, you know, flip-flops and, you know, and board shorts, and that makes you do your job well and you're not client-facing, why do I care? And so that going back to that kind of played everybody's strengths and let people kind of develop themselves. And I was like what uh, George Patton said, tell a soldier what you, what you need done, but don't tell them how to do it. And you'll be surprised at their ingenuity. And the older I get and the less I want to be involved in the day to day, the more I try to, as a leader, say, this is where I want to go. And I do have a plan, but I don't necessarily have the tactics and I can tell you what they are. If you ask me, I'll try to help you, but I'm going to let you, I trust you and you're smart, figure this out. And I'm constantly impressed at the suggestions that come. And I try, you know, it's hard to be the CEO and, and then admit you don't know everything. And so I've been sometimes a little hesitant to, to, to take the advice of the good people that I asked for, but 
uh, a lot of the things that we developed in the agency and the, the digital practices that we've had and trusting in, in Janine, my office manager for so many years and, and, and HR decisions and how we do things and keeping me legal. All, all of those have been really important. And, and I think in Silicon Valley, you know, it's funny because this is the birthplace of the, we have a ping pong table and a nap room and we don't, but I mean, they, they, Silicon Valley does. Uh, that, right. that whole out here, I am by no means exceptional, but I think when I meet people from other markets, it's, it's a little less the nature of it. Uh, so I think it's almost a necessity now to, to have the best people you have to design a workflow for them that suits them. And sometimes you'll get people who maybe could make more money working somewhere else who say, I just like the vibe. I like that you accept this about me and I will give you my heart and soul. And so that's been part of my success for sure. Right. And th- that's, that's really huge. And you talked about, you know, so you, you have an office in a pretty flexible structure and people work to get things done. I guess like, how are you, what, what benefit is the office, is the office provide you, right? So if people can work flexibly, can you talk about what, what you found to work well in terms of that model, in terms of how, how often you're meeting, you know, what tends to be productive versus what tends to step on people's toes? Uh, well, it's funny. We used to do staff meetings on a weekly basis, which I think, you know, it, it, a lot of practices when I, when I started at the agency that I worked at when I left college for two years, it was not a great environment. I'll just leave it at that. I don't like to tell war stories, but it, so when I started my company at 25, I'm like, well, I'm not doing any of that stuff. You know, there were clearly things that were necessary. There were staff meetings you should have, you know, and reports and invoices. There's a lot of commonalities that obviously have to exist, but I was, you know, that young, crazy, you know, uh, I'm going to do it totally different than, than, than old people do it. And then you realize over time, Hey, a lot of those things exist because they make sense. And so we used to do staff meetings on a weekly basis. And now with people who are working flexibly and are coming in at different times and have a baby and this and that, it's actually harder to do. And that's something that I wrestle with because I think the communication about clients is really important. And so now it gets done in phone calls, it gets done in chats, it gets done, you know, how we communicate, we've, we've been given a lot of options. And I think that sometimes it's so much that it becomes chaotic. And I literally try to sync. I saw like an old mandate book, but I have a calendar on my phone, but I have notes that I wrote down, but I have voicemails about meetings. And literally this morning before this call, I was like, well, this client called and said this time, so I need to put that on my calendar. And this one texted. And this came, this came, you know, a post-it note on my chair that said, this person wants to see you at this time. Constantly changing that. We have a document that we lovingly refer to as the TPS report. Those of you who have seen the movie Office Space, and we've been doing it longer than anybody I know. I've had one for, I don't know, 20 years. So the TPS report is total pending spending. I had to come up with some reason for the acronym to exist. And that is our kind of living document that says these are the clients, this is the media they're buying. This helps my traffic department, it helps my sales department, it helps my media department, it helps my billing department. And so that's a living document that we use that everybody shares. And it generally answers a lot of questions for everybody. So we can go to that. We put in a server. 10 years ago or something, I don't know, that, you know, they were constantly telling me, you know, Hunter, it's on the server. And I go, yeah, but I pay you to find it for me because I'm the lazy guy. But having having that common core of data for our clients resolves not being able to meet in person, face-to-face as much as, as I might like. Right. That's that's really important. And you said something else a second ago in the, the context of, of delegation and the patent quote, you know, getting people to to do something where you, you have an outcome in mind, but you don't know what steps are going to be needed to get there. How do you take on some, what's your approach to delegating when you, the, the outcome you want might be illegible because the domain you're focusing on is something you're not as familiar with? Like, you know, for example, maybe you need to do Facebook ads to promote your agency to a B2B audience. How do you go about delegating in, in an illegible domain like that? So I've been, 
I, I try and the older I get, the better I get about find the right people. Don't be ashamed to ask questions. One of the smartest guys I know, one of my best friends, Dennis Galvan, uh, should he happen to hear this, I'll appreciate you saying that, but he is like one of the smartest guys I know. And, and he's a college professor, speaks seven languages. And he said, whenever he doesn't know something, he just says, I don't know what that is. And he's never afraid of being embarrassed, even if it's something really common. And I try to do that. And I try to say, you know what, because I, I don't want to spend the rest of my life hiding the fact that I don't know. Let's just pull the Band-Aid off right now and say, I don't like, I have clients who don't get the difference between SEM and SEO. And that's a conversation we have, you know, regularly. But at one point I didn't, and I had to say it out loud, and then I learned. And so you address the problem. And so I say it out loud when I don't know it, and then I try to find the smartest possible people that I can. And are they going to be a contractor, a vendor, a consultant? Is it a short-term thing that we need to all learn as an agency, or do I hire somebody because this is an ongoing job? And I've had, you know, my creative director, my art director, Josh, has been with me for, for so long. Self-taught coding, self-taught internet, web design, you know, they, they really dove in. And so we try to pick those areas that we think we need internal strength. And then I try to be smart enough to say, these are things that we're never going to do for ourselves. You know, we don't need to chop down trees and to build our furniture, we can buy it, but some things we can do for ourselves. We can build our own website. And so as a CEO, making those decisions about where you do it yourself and where you pay somebody to do it can be the difference between making money and losing it. And there are times when we have to raise our hand and say, this isn't something you do. You know, I fell down and I have a bruise versus I have a bone sticking out of my arm. One of them you go to the hospital for. And so sometimes it's hard for a guy who's bottom line based to say, I'm going to spend the money to go to the doctor because I need to. And so we, we've made partnerships and alliances with people who are really strong in areas that we're not. And we're very candid about that. And if there's something that a client needs that I can't do, a digital used to be a space where I would turn down a lot of stuff. Or I would just say, I don't want to enter into it because I don't think I can value add. And if I can't, then you're going to, and, I, and it's proven to you, then you're going to say, well, is he really value adding in these other things he's doing? And so again, that level of sincerity to say, at some point, I, I don't want to be found out for being wrong. So I want to be right. So we've, we've built up a good core of people that I can go to and say, I don't know how this works. Can you tell me? And what are you going to charge to do it? And that combined with internal training and everybody always getting smarter all the time about what they do has been a big help. And we bought, we brought production in house years ago. And that was something that was a big deal because I was spending a lot of money and back in the day, TV production took a lot of cash. I mean, you had to have, you know, the gear that you needed was impressive. And now it was something that as an agency, we figured out how to make money doing it in-house. Yeah. And I think that hits on um, a big challenge for lots of agencies, which is deciding how much to focus on a particular area and a particular core competency competency versus what, what to turn down. What lessons have you learned there? Huh. <laughs> it was funny when, when SEM first started, when Google first got going, I remember talking to it and I didn't know enough about it. So I sought out people and EO is great for that. And there's, uh, there's various organizations and people like this, the podcast you listen to in the agency business and occasionally you pick up some kernel that's useful to you. I spoke to a guy on the East coast. Uh, I forget how I knew him, but he was an agency guy. He said, Oh, if you're not making 40%, you're not trying hard enough. You know, this is the markup you got to do. The budgets are small. And I'm like, okay. And so we sort of learned how to do it. And in the beginning you start doing it. And then you realize, then clients realize, well, my cousin's kid could do this, you know, and, and what's the, what's the fair market value for the service that you're offering. And so there's, there's times that I recognize there's areas that it's just not gonna be profitable enough. And, and it's hard because, and sometimes I'll do it and, and do it for no profit because I want the big picture. At this point, our goal for our clients is to be your full service agency. And for the last going back 10, 15 years ago, a lot of what clients are doing in digital 
they had they had somebody helping them digital and they had us helping them traditionally. And our goal over the last few years, and why I've built a great team of people with uh, Jen and Sean and Olivia and Beth, my digital or my uh, my uh, traditional media director, to be able to offer more of those services so we can compete in that realm. And sometimes, you know, I say with three, you get egg roll. You know, if I'm doing your TV and your radio and and your SEM, but you need me to do your Facebook, I'll do it. I probably won't make much money doing it. You know, or maybe we make a lot on your Facebook, but your SEO is a pain in the butt. So it, it becomes a package deal and it becomes in the grand scheme, we make more total money. But some of those areas like I give I don't give away, but we reduce the cost of production for clients to introduce them to television to keep that reasonable for them because I can because I own the production company. It's not a I'm not paying out of pocket to a third party vendor. Uh, and and uh, so I can make those choices. And I think that's one of the reasons we keep clients for a long time, because we don't feel the need to gouge them a lot of a lot of sole digital providers are making massive per, uh, commissions. I mean, just huge because, and I get it. They're like, well, I'm only getting a $5,000 budget. So you think I should do that for, you know, $750? We don't, we, we couldn't run it. So we've got to make, you know, $3,000 or $2,000 on it to, for it to pencil because we've got to pay all these people. And I say, well, that's fine. But the client's only getting 60% of what they ought to be getting or, or you know, 50 or 40%. And so they're not going to value you in the long run. So if I can bundle that and say, hey, I made a little bit there, but a lot over here and it all worked out, that's been part of our business model the last few years. And that's been going well. And we haven't introduced any clients to it that have gone backward on it. So I feel that we're making a good offer, but we're making it a fair price. And so for, for those that haven't gotten into the digital space, and on the one hand, I wish nobody else would, but obviously every agency is, you got to take that into account. And, and for people that are, and for me, I actually like the opportunity of, meeting a client who has a digital agency that doesn't know anything else. And we're talking to a, a big client right now that says, I've got an agency and they're out of state. They don't know my market. And we, we're done with them because they just don't get how things work here. And we hear the same thing in digital. Well, we have this digital agency, but we ask them for advice on a direct mail piece. And they looked at us like we were speaking you know, Serbian. They, they just don't know what to do. And so we're trying to be able to offer value in all of those areas. And it's hard, but some of that is, it involves having a, a wide berth of vendors. Right. And you hit on two things that, I, that I'd love to talk about. For, for one is this idea of, of leverage and kind of creating a moat around your, your set of services as opposed to having, you know, having to just do anything for anyone and, not, and having to kind of reinvent the wheel for each engagement. So you guys obviously got to a point where you could do that and you could sort of build your own production house and house. And I'm sure it took some time to get to a point of being able to afford to do that. If, if you're thinking about like a, a newer agency, a boutique agency, maybe a few years in, in have you seen any good examples of, of things that they can do to develop their own IP and sort of, you know, develop their own leverage from an earlier point, or maybe something that you guys did in the early stage where you said, okay, this is a good strategic move. We're not just going to be, you know, middlemen. We can actually create something for ourselves here. Well, obviously in the digital space, there are firms that, I mean, that reputation management becomes something they're really good at and, and clients are willing to pay for that. And the trick is, you've got to be a mile wide an inch deep because you're not going to make a lot of money on any one client. So if you're making, you know, a thousand dollars a client, but you've got a hundred clients, so there's your hundred grand. It's a tougher sales job, but that, but it's also something that it's an easier get because clients say, Oh, it's only a thousand bucks. And so if you have that particular capacity, like SEO is something that it takes creating content. And now with, in the modern world, if you look at how many television shows are in development on Netflix, it's hundreds and hundreds. I mean, the content creation is is a new industry. And so if you're a good content creator, uh, I think you could create a, a boutique agency that says, I'm going to manage 
your social media campaigns. And there's a lot of people, there's a lot of growth in that field. So you can get started in that fairly easily with a fairly, without having to buy a lot of equipment, but it's based on the talents of the, of the few people that you have. And it is obviously a burgeoning side of the business. And so there are those, those subsets. I think the tough part in the long run is for that one, it becomes a sales challenge. You have to sell a lot. You have to have a lot of clients. Whereas for us, we try to say, Hey, I'd like to, I'd like to take my existing clients and add to the services that we're offering them. So we're going to make 30% more on all of them. And, and we're going to have less competition because if somebody comes in, they're only a digital agency, they're not going to get hired. If somebody comes in, they only do direct mail, they're not going to get hired because we're doing it all. And as I said, we're trying to be fair and realistic about what value add we bring. And in some cases we're saying we charge 10% for this and 30% for this. And here's why. And we can justify it. Right. That, that makes sense. And it's the old, you can shear the sheep once a month, but you only get to cut its throat once. You know, I mean, you, you, you can't, you can't gouge. And right. that's, that's where we win a lot of businesses. We go in and somebody says, you know, I got gouged. And it could be one thing. It could be, it's, it's it, sometimes it's silly, but it's like, if you take your car in to get worked on and they tell you it's going to be a thousand dollars and then you go in and they say it was 1395 and you go, well, that's more than you said it was going to be. And they go, well, labor was this. And you go, but it took an hour and you charged me $400. Labor was four. You know, you, you get bent about it, you know? I'm, yeah. And it takes a long time to get over that negative. Yeah. That's, so that's what, what, that's really trust is broken, you know, you're out of the circle of trust, Greg, you know, I mean, it, it's gone. And so it's important yeah. to, uh, you are, well, we'll had to throw a movie quote in there somewhere, but so it's important to, to look somebody in the eye and say, let me explain how I get paid for it. Like car dealers are always offended when people come in and want to buy their car for a loss. Like, how do you not get that we paid more than that for the car? You know, like, no, you guys make thousands. Like, actually we don't, we make about 1500 bucks selling you the car. Right. So why, why is it you think we're getting rich? Purely depreciating asset. Yeah. <laughs> and so for the agency, I think it's, I think it's important to look at it and, and, and you don't have to explain your whole business model to people, but you, you kind of have to rationalize what it is that you're doing. And at the end of the day, you've got to be prepared for somebody to audit your invoice and say, well, how much did I pay for that? And they right. will, they will get picky about why was a voice over this much instead of that much and how much is, and people don't appreciate what it costs to do production. Yeah. And I think uh, telling the truth is, is huge and, and laying out the next best alternatives uh, as part of your sales process in an honest way, because they're going to find those alternatives anyway. And if they don't, they should. And if you can't lay out those alternatives and make a compelling case against it, then you kind of have to rework your model anyway. You know, I know we're getting towards the end of the hour, but another thing you mentioned there is this idea of local versus versus national uh, versus being able to work anywhere. And I think, you know, early in the days of my business, I sort of had a millennial self-righteousness about it. When I would talk to an agency that was like, ah, oh, we only want to work in the, the Midwest or in these three states. I would say like, guys, there's the internet. There's, a, you know, you can set up back campaigns anywhere. There's, there's telecommunication. Like, why, why are you limiting yourselves like this? And then the more, the more agencies I talk to, I actually do see how much leverage you can get by really understanding a local market when you're talking about car dealers and, and these sorts of businesses. I, I guess I'd love to hear your thoughts on, you know, how true that is, how much leverage there is still to be had by being local versus being national. To be honest, the first thing that comes to mind when you say local is that I can look you in the eye and I can shake your hand and I can get to know you. And on the one hand, I have clients that I see a couple of times a year and I have other clients that I see in person more. In the modern age doing what we're doing now, I mean, meeting virtually is, is cool. But I, and again, because I've been doing this a long time and I used to drive around in a car and carry a TV and a VCR and show commercials, the idea of face-to-face -face does have value. And the idea of being able to pronounce all the names of the cities that surround a, a, a client's business. It's always funny when people come from out of state and we get a town called Milpitas uh, that's near here uh, in, in near San Jose. And people come in and mispronounce it. And, and, and you'll realize you, you're not from around here. And it's a whole, I grew up in the Midwest, that whole, you're not from around here. You're an outsider. You know, it still kind of rings true. And some of it is, for me, 
when I would look at agencies that were working across the country, and I would say, how are you handling? I mean, if you've got to go to take a camera to a, to a client's facility and you've got to shoot video, even if you only do it once a year, but I'm in California and you're in Alabama, I had to pay a guy to get on a plane. I had to pay a guy to take, I had to carry gear or rent local stuff or whatever. Those, those have been barriers that have, that have been a concern. And I'm sure there are people listening and watching this who would say, you're stupid. You just, you just do it. You know, you just lower the cost of it to, to get the business. But I, I'm also incredibly blessed to be in Silicon Valley, California, the center of the universe since the year 2000. I mean, I've said that. I've traveled the world. They're like, ooh, Silicon Valley. It's not a fascinating place to live, frankly. It's kind of boring. It's full of H1B visa engineers banging out the greatest technology that we all feel we need to buy. But there's a lot of money here, and there's a lot of growth here. And so I'm, I'm lucky. Swing a dead cat, and there's probably a good prospect. So I don't have to travel a lot, but I'm expanding into Sacramento, Los Angeles, we handled a big national client last year that I think we did a really good job for, but they were based here. And so it was easy to meet with them repeatedly. And we met often. And that part of it, sitting in a conference room with eight or nine people, I think is still part of, of our sort of brand. And so doing it remotely is not impossible, but it's not been as necessary for us as maybe for some other people. Right. And that's sort of, you know, intuitive understanding of a market too in ways that you can't even articulate, but you just, it's sort of like a spidey sense you get from knowing a particular industry in a particular space. So I think that's, that's really important. Plus the Bay area is gorgeous. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a lot to be said for being here. It's uh, yeah. been a winter and I think it's 60 degrees. So we're fine. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I can't complain. <laughs> awesome. Hunter. Uh, Hunter, how can people get in touch with you? You can find me at elkinsadvertising.com is the website and all the contact information is on there. So my email, et cetera, feel free to follow anytime. Happy to chat. Awesome. Thanks so much, man. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Digital Agency Growth Podcast. Again, today's episode is sponsored by our company, Sales Schema. And again, we are a fractional BDR team for agencies. That means we are a managed opportunity generation service, and we are delivering hundreds of opportunities each year with marketing decision makers based on criteria that we come up with with our clients. So if you want to see what our workflow actually looks like and get a real look at it, you can go to saleschema.com. Look forward to catching up on the next episode.